So this morning we come to our final message. Uh, the title of this is <clears throat> "The Church as the New Man: The Corporate Christ Engaging in Spiritual Warfare to Defeat God's Enemy and to Bring in the Kingdom of God." I hope through these uh, past few messages, the Lord would have enlightened us and impress us that what is on His heart is to gain this corporate man, who is revealed as the corporate Christ, that will eventually consummate to be the new Jerusalem. <clears throat> man, this is a uh, uh, man is what God desires. In eternity past, God made his plan. He does not want to remain in himself. He wants to find a vessel into whom he can impart, dispense himself, and with whom he can mingle himself, even incorporate himself. So eventually, <clears throat> that God and man Man and God will become an incorporated entity. Well, if we recall that um, uh, after Satan's rebellion ruined the original creation of God, God came in to restore that uh, universe, and He uh, <clears throat> recreated. In Genesis 1, he restored that creation by bringing forth uh, different forms of life. He brought forth the plant life, and then the fowl in the air, the fish in the sea, and then the cattle on the earth. Then on the sixth day, it, the Bible says, tells us that God said, let us make man in a very definite, deliberate way that the Bible tells us that God has this deliberate, uh, definite intention, decision to make man. So, and then after the creation of man, God rested. This shows that Man is the ultimate goal of God's creation. When God gained a man, he was happy. He was, he was satisfied. In fact, <clears throat> in Genesis 1, after man was created, God says it was very good. So in comparing with the other creation, God said it was good, but coming to man's creation, it was very good. Since man is what is in God's heart, man is the goal of God's creation, man is the center of God's creation. God needs man. Yesterday, I think Brother David um, uh, mentioned this, this uh, 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 sentence saying, um, uh, we have to realize God needs man even more than man needs God. It is true. We don't realize how 
uh, how much, uh, how intense is this desire within God to gain a man that is according to himself? <clears throat> well, um, you know, if you read Genesis 1 carefully, that you see that in the first five days, when God came in to restore that ruined universe, and beginning from verse 3, God said, let there be, let there be light, right? And then in verse 6, he said again, let there be an expanse in the, in the midst of the waters. Then verse 9, he said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Then verse 11, let the earth sprout grass. And, let, and then verse 14, let there be light bearers. Then verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living animals. Then verse 24, let the earth bring forth living animals. <clears throat> Why am I always saying this? You see, <clears throat> in those first five days, in God's work to bring forth the different forms of life, all God said was, let it be. Let the waters swarm with the swarms of living animals. Let the earth bring forth the living animals. Let this happen. Let that happen. But on the, on the sixth day, God said, let us make man. It is not just let the water do something, let the earth uh, bring forth something, let there be this, let there be that. But on the sixth day, in a very definite, deliberate way, God said, let us do something. The creation of man <clears throat> is not just another creation, like the fish, the fowl, the cattle. Man was made in a very decisive, deliberate way by God. And it involves God himself. It did not just happen. Let there be man. No. God said, let us do something. Let us make man. <clears throat> God was involved in the making of man. And surely we saw that God put to use the dust of the ground, the clay, to form man's body, and Jehovah breathed into his nostrils his breath of life, which formed the spirit of man within him. <clears throat> so within this created man, there was something of Jehovah there. Of course, it was not God's element, yet it was God's breath. Something of God was breathed into this man of clay, and man became a living soul. Well, I'd like to impress you, especially many uh, young, young saints, newer saints among us. Never belittle man. Man is the center of God's heart. And man, and God loves man so much. I don't know why, but this is what the Bible reveals to us. God loves man. His intention is altogether wrapped up with man. And even though later, this man failed him. 
this man disappointed God, that four thousand years later, God Himself came to become a man. <clears throat> he cannot give up this man. He cannot forget this man. He Himself become one of them. His purpose is altogether related to man. Why? This man is who bears God's image. And has God's likeness, and to this man, God gave、uh, authority, and God charged man to bear have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl in the air, and all the creeping things on the earth. There was a deep intention within God's heart. Right from day one, He wanted to gain a man, and we know. That was Adam, but that Adam was not an individual man. That Adam was a corporate man, because in verse twenty-six, when God said, "Let us make man, M-A-N, singular," and and then in our image, according to our likeness, then He says, "Let them have dominion." This singular man becomes them. When God created this single man, Adam. He had in mind actually a corporate man. Adam was a corporate man, <clears throat> pointing to, pointing to Christ. Adam was a figure of Christ, and not just the individual Christ, but even a corporate Christ. Just like Adam was a corporate person, Christ also is a corporate, is a body Christ, is a corporate Christ. God needs a man. In a, in opposite in in comparison to all the other forms of life, well, we don't have to talk about the plant life because they don't have much sensitivity. But how about the other animals, the the fowl in the air, <clears throat> the birds, the fish, the cattle, all the animals? Well, they have some sensitivity. But they they don't have much of a person. But with a man, he has man has a person, man has a personality, man has the ability to make discernment, to make decision. We should not forget, even right there, in、uh, Genesis one, God had a problem. What problem? God has an enemy, who is always. Uh, opposing God, he is rebellious toward God. So, in addition to God's desire to gain a man who is just like himself, who is just his duplication, who is just his photograph, so that so that he can be expressed through them, but also, I would say, even more importantly, God needs a man. Who can make decision? Who has a personality? Who has who has、uh, <clears throat> Christ as his person within to exercise dominion? We cannot ask uh, uh, a lamb、uh, or an elephant to deal with God's enemy. No, even though even a lion may be strong. But it does not have the personality that a man has. 
a man is more than just an entity of life. Life is precious. Life is sweet. Life is enjoyable. But life alone cannot accomplish God's purpose. The life has to be with a person in order to have a personality to make decision, so that we can stand up against God's enemy, Satan, to withstand him, to defeat him, to subdue him. This is what's on God's heart. That's why this matter of man, and even even we see a corporate man, is so crucial, is so central in God's heart. We need to, we have been seeing this development, how God's eternal purpose is intimately involved with man. Not only for man, but even in man, with man, God and man ultimately become so fully, completely incorporated. You cannot tell where God ends, where man begins, where man ends, where God begins. In the New Jerusalem, you see a wonderful entity that God and man, man and God, indwell within each other to become a mutual dwelling place. This is the incorporated God. This is the ultimate God-man. God in man and man in God. Saints, this is the revelation of the Bible. Now we come to this uh, uh, last message, which is very important, very crucial in the working out of God's eternal purpose in relation to this corporate man. The first point says the church, as the new man, accomplishes God's eternal purpose. As I said uh, before, that God in Genesis 1 created a man in such a deliberate, in such a decisive way that it involves God himself, the triune God himself, right? Um, But that man who was Adam failed God. Um, He did not, he failed to Satan's seduction and became fallen. He was corrupted. And however, God would not give up his purpose So 4,000 years later, he himself came to be a man. God became a man. Isn't this how wonderful this is? How marvelous. Our God did not just send a prophet. He did not just send some representative. He himself came to be a man, even passed through a normal uh, delivery process. He was born of a virgin, and he was born as a little child, not in a very, not in a stately, in a, in a, uh, 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 in a very uh, outwardly exciting, uh, flashy way. He was born in a lowly home. Even at his birth, His parents could not even find 
a place to stay, to spend the night. They found an inn, and he, there was a manger, a manger. That's where the little child was born. He was he was born out of a lowly source. That little child was the mighty God, was the eternal Father. God became a man of flesh and blood, like you and I. You cannot tell at all that child any different from all the other children on the earth. Outwardly, he looked exactly like us. Dear saints, this is this mystery is too great. God became a man. He loved man to such a degree. He lived a human life for thirty-three and a half years, and particularly he ministered <clears throat> in the last three and a half years. And during the course of his human living, he expressed God the Father. He withstood Satan. He carried out the healing of the sick. He cast out demons. He pushed back Satan's kingdom. In John, uh, in 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 in, uh, 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 in the gospel, he he says that uh, this Satan he was cast down from the heaven. This Satan, God's enemy, in him, in Christ, the Son of God, he has nothing. He has no ground, no possibility, no room at all in this man, Jesus, the Son of God. Satan has no no possibility, no room. Unlike the first man, Adam, he fell to Satan's scheme. But now Jesus came as God Himself. In in man, he overcame. Even all the way to the cross, he was not defeated there. Though he was nailed there by man to the cross, he was victorious. According to Colossians two, he what? He shook them off. He brushed them off. All the principalities and powers trying to cling on to him, trying to to uh, 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 delay him, frustrate him from going through the death. Christ on the cross brushed them off, right? Making a show of them openly, putting them to shame. God's enemy is defeated. This man expressed God while he was living on the earth as a humble man, lowly man, and on the cross he defeated Satan. He nailed him on the cross. Satan, who was in man's flesh. Was put to an end there on the cross. Praise the Lord. That man fulfilled God's original purpose. Paul called him the second man. He was the second man. While he was on the cross, Ephesians chapter two fifteen tells us that on the cross Christ created out of the two, referring to the two peoples. The Jews and the Gentiles into one new man. I don't. I really. I try to find out. Paul. Paul. 
Brother Paul, where did you get this realization? Jesus did not tell us this. No one really told us this. But the Apostle Paul was graced by God to receive this heavenly revelation, this heavenly insight. When he saw the scene at the cross, and he saw what is taking place there was not just a poor man hanging there on the cross with the nail wounds, but he was there creating. He was not there dying. He was not there. He was not there just suffering. He was there, what, creating one new man. Paul had that deep realization. I believe that was a vision given to him from the heavens. That scenery is beyond what the naked eyes can see. Oh, while Christ was hanging there for those six hours, a lot of things happened. There was actually a battle going on there. All those angels were evil angels, principalities, powers, swarming around him. But then Christ brushed them off, and then he declared victory, and then he created one new man on the cross. And we know that one new man is the body, is the body of Christ, is the church that was manifested just 50 days later on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. That was the fulfillment of, of Jesus' word in Matthew sixteen nineteen. He says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Even while he was on the cross, oh, the gates of Hades were there. Satan was doing his best to frustrate this Christ from going through his death, his resurrection. But Christ defeated him. The gates of Hades could not prevail. He built the church. He created the one new man. And then 50 days later, it was manifested on the day of Pentecost. He came, he was poured out, as the consummated spirit, and baptize all those believers in one spirit into one body. There, although the first man failed God, the second man came to fulfill God's intention and desire. And at the end of his life, He continued, even though he himself, his life is ended. His earthly journey is finished. But he created one corporate new man as his continuation. And that new man is just his church, his body, constituting, constituted with himself as the the resurrected and ascended head, and his body with all the, all the members regenerated by him, filled with him, the head and the body joined together to become this universal corporate man, which is the church on the earth today. Dear saints, this is the vision the Bible shows us. And we know at the end of this age, where we are now, according to Revelation chapter 12, 
there will be a man child. The woman, the woman will bring forth a man child as an as the stronger part of God's people, who is the overcomer to cast Satan from heaven to the earth. Oh, this is the corporate man that God has been uh, longing to obtain in Genesis at the beginning, in the beginning of time, that for the fulfillment of his eternal purpose, and then with that man-child as the overcomer, defeating Satan to usher in the kingdom of God, and that is actually the kingdom of God and man together as one, which is the new Jerusalem. So we see the church is not just a congregation, surely not a building. It is not even just a congregation, a called out congregation. That is what it seems to be, apparently to be. But it is actually a new man, a person. Have you ever considered the church in this way? The church is not even just a body. It's not even just an organism uh, uh, with life. The church is a person. It's a new man. We know we have been stressing the matter of the body of Christ, the church of the, as the body of Christ for years. We are not saying anything different because the new man is the body. The body is the new man. It's just that when we mention the body of Christ, the focus is on us, is on us as the living organism. But the body, as mentioned by Paul, is not a headless body. We should never consider, when we talk about the body of Christ, it is just some kind of body, some kind of a life mass floating around. No, it is the body of Christ, of a person. It is not just some kind of life body. It's a life, it's a body. Of course, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, it focuses on us as the believers. But as believers, we are organically connected to the head. It cannot be separated. The body is always connected to the head, joined to the head. And so the body is the new man. The new man is the body. While the body may emphasize the stress on the matter of life, the organicness, how living it is with many members. But when it mentions the, the new man, the emphasis is on the person. There is a person in this body. That is Christ himself. The resurrected and ascended Christ is the very person within us, even our personality, Right? Every human being is so special among all the created things because he has a personality. He can think. He can make decisions. Now the very person in this, in this man is no longer us. It's no longer our own natural soul. It's actually Christ himself. He is the, the living, resurrected person within us. He is our real personality being expressed and carrying out decisions to execute 
God's plan. So this new man accomplishes God's eternal purpose. He says God's intention in this in His creation of man was to have a corporate man to express Him and represent Him. And uh, God, not B. Let's continue. B says God created a corporate man to represent Him by having dominion over all things. Right after God created man, created man. As he says, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness." God says, "Let them have dominion." As soon as this man was created in God's image and likeness, God God says, "Let them have dominion." He didn't just say, "Well, let them live. Let them just、uh, have a good life. Let them uh, just uh, 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 enjoy themselves." This man created in God's image. The immediate thought within God was, "Let them have dominion." God expects this man to bear dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heaven, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That includes the snake, the serpent, Satan. Man was charged to have dominion over the snake, over the serpent, Satan. And in verse twenty-eight, God blessed them. God blessed this corporate man, and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth." Again, it stresses the matter of having dominion, ruling for God. Even the word "subdue" is mentioned here, which implies a warfare, a battle, is going on. Indeed, outwardly, there nothing much. It was not a battlefield in Eden, but it was behind the scene. Satan is always against God, fighting against God, rebelling against God, opposing God. So God wants this man to what? Not only to express Him with His image and likeness, but also to subdue the earth, to have dominion over Satan. This is my burden this morning in this message for us to see, as the church, as a corporate Christ on the earth, we have a utmost important responsibility. Is learning how to reign for God, how to rule with God, and how to exercise our dominion, our authority, to defeat Satan, to subdue Satan, and to subdue the earth, this earth that has been ruined, spoiled by Satan, need to be restored. Who can restore it? Not any president, not only premier, not any, not any, not any prime minister can do this. Only the corporate man can subdue the earth and restore it back to God's original condition. Let me read on. So, point one: God's intention in giving man dominion is for him, number one, to subdue God's enemy, Satan. 
That's first. Then secondly, to recover the earth. Saints, doesn't doesn't the earth need our recovery? Don't think the earth is becoming better, is becoming more prosperous, becoming more advanced. Look at the technology, look at the advancement of science and all the prosperity. Saints, this earth is being corrupted more than ever before. I'm not talking about the dirt on the ground we are standing on. That that has not changed. I'm talking about the humanity. The human beings who are living on this earth has been spoiled, damaged. And as we saw in in chapter 2, message 2, this earth has become a perverted, crooked generation. Fully filled, saturated, obsessed with Satan in the disguise of a beautiful world outwardly, but full of the satanic thought, full of the satanic scheme, full of a system of error, leading God's people astray, away from God. There is a direction in the worldly, in the worldly order today is to make man, help man to make to make error, to miss the mark, to forsake God. This is what is happening on our earth today. And is God needs man, a corporate man, to recover the earth. And then thirdly, to exercise God's authority over the earth in order that the kingdom of God may come to the earth. Man, God needs man, the corporate man, the church, to bring in his kingdom. God's kingdom will not just automatically descend from heaven. There has to be a party on the earth to bring it in. And that party is the corporate man. We saw from the past messages, God must have this corporate man to be that corporate Noah, a herald of righteousness to condemn the earth then God has the basis for him to execute his judgment and to bring in his kingdom. It is the church, it is that corporate man that will bring in the kingdom of God for the will of God to be done on earth and the glory of God be manifested on the earth, just as the Lord Jesus taught the disciples to pray. That Father May your name be sanctified. Your kingdom come. Your your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Now point C, the church as the corporate new man is the corporate warrior to defeat God's enemy and to bring in the kingdom of God. This new man is a warrior. I would say even the so-called, if we only know the church as the body of Christ, full of life, full of function, so many members, that is good in functioning, in expressing God. But if we want to deal with God's enemy, defeat God's enemy, there has the church, the church has to be a man, the new man. This corporate man will become the corporate warrior. 
to defeat God's enemy. Number one says, according to Daniel 2, when Christ appears as God, as the God cut stone, he with his overcomers, the corporate Christ, will strike the ten kings with Antichrist, thereby crushing the great image from the toes to the head. These days I have been very impressed with this vision saw seen by Nebuchadnezzar of this great human image. We spoke about this in the past conferences and even in the training I mentioned. I hope that we will have a deep impression about this great image because it tells us the entire human history represented by this great image with a golden head represented the Babylonian empire and also the silver breast and uh, uh, and shoulders and breasts signifying the Persian, Medo-Persian empire and the bronze abdomen and thigh signifying the uh, Grecian empire and the two legs of iron and the ten toes, the two legs of iron signifying the Roman Empire, and the two ten toes of iron and clay is where we are today. In the is with the autocracy and democracy mixed together. Isn't this what we are seeing today? You know, even in our so-called democratic country. Don't think it's all that democratic. There's a lot of autocracy going on. That uh, today we are living out the prophecies in the Bible very clearly. We are in the age of the ten toes. But according to that vision, we are show we are told that there will be, you know, that 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 whole image span from Genesis 10, all the way to Revelation 17 and 18, beginning from Nimrod, uh, uh, setting up the beginning, initiating the human government, building the city of Babel, which is, which eventually consummate to be the great Babylon in Revelation, all the way to Revelation 17, 18, with that great Babylon, that is the that is Rome that is the Roman the epitome of the Roman Empire that we are still in, whether we we agree with it or not, we like it or not, we are still in that continuation in the whole human but there will be a stone cut without hand that is our Lord Jesus Christ. that little stone will strike this image at the toes and that it will become a great mountain, and the whole image will topple, will be defeated. And that stone, dear saints, on the one hand, it refers to Christ, but on the other hand, we must realize that is not just the individual Christ. It is the corporate Christ. He is the living stone, and as Peter says, we all are living stones. We all are living stones. And Zechariah 14 tells us when God 
God will come with his saints, with the saints together with him. When Christ return, he will not return alone. He, the Bible tells us clearly, he will return with the saints. Not the saints in general, but the overcomers. We know according to the Bible's revelation, the rapture will take place soon. Christ is on his way as his parousia. He may not be physically appearing yet, but his parousia is already taking place. He is in the air, in the cloud. He is on his way, not manifested yet. And now, and then the, 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 the process of rapture will begin to bring, to get, to rapture the ones who are ripened first, the first fruits, the overcomers. And then when he, when he finally appeared and the end of the three and a half years of great tribulation, then the, the rapture of the overcomers should have been completed. And he will be, there will be a wedding of the Lamb and all his overcomers as his bride. And at the end of that wedding, they will, the bride will come back with his bridegroom. That the wedding garment that she will be wearing will become the fighting armor. Dressed in linen, bright and clear, is a bridal army. They will come back together as that strike, as that smiting stone, striking the image at the feet to topple the whole, the entire human image. And then that stone will become the kingdom of God. This is wonderful. We're looking forward to that day to come soon. Number two, after coming to defeat Antichrist and to crush the aggregate of human government, government, the corporate Christ, Christ with his overcoming bride, will become a great mountain to fill the whole earth, making the whole earth God's kingdom. This kingdom will consummate in the new Jerusalem, the ultimate and consummate step of the divine history. I think this is already, this is very clear. Okay, now we come to Roman numeral two. Revelation 12 presents a great vision concerning the war in heaven, the warfare in the universe between God and his enemy. This vi- the vision in this chapter unveils the true situation in the universe, the view that God's enemy is fighting against him. Revelation 12 shows us a scene of a warfare taking place in the heavens. Saints, I hope that we will realize that we are not living in a peaceful days. Of course, we already know there are all these problems around us in the world, the pandemic, all the um, social uh, chaos, and uh, economical woes, and so forth. But even beyond that, that is not even the, what, what is really happening. 
what is really happening is behind the scene. There is a warfare, struggle between God and Satan. All these things happening outwardly that we are seeing around us are just are just different are just some side issues, byproducts of that struggle, that warfare between God and Satan. We see Revelation twelve. It says tells us that there is this uh, woman, a bright, universally great bright woman. She was clothed with the sun, the moon under underneath her feet, her head, a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. She was about to bring forth. She was travailing in birth, and then there was a dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and he, she, uh. This dragon stood before the woman, who was about to bring forth, so that when she brings forth, he might devour her child. He will. That dragon will not let that child to live to exist. It's a very tense moment. We know that dragon is Satan, and that woman signifies the entire body of God's people, the believers. They are about to bring forth a man-child. This is a very particular、uh, expression, only used in the Bible. A man-child, a child as a man, man-child. It's not just a little child; it's a man-child. Actually, this is the fulfillment of the the corporate man, the new man that Christ. Created, but this man-child, as one being delivered, is a man. But as a child being delivered, but is a man, the man-child. And there is war in heaven. Verse seven says, "There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels went to war with the dragon, and the dragon war with his angels, and they did not prevail." Neither was their place found any longer in heaven. The, dra- the great dragon was cast down, the ancient serpent, he he who is called the devil and Satan, he who deceives the whole inhabited earth. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. Hallelujah! In that heavenly warfare, through the delivery of that man-child, Satan. The ancient serpent, the dragon, was cast down, was defeated. Now let's、uh, see. Let's see what was going on. It is crucial for us to see that behind the physical scene, a spiritual struggle, a struggle not seen with human eyes, is taking place. I hope, by the Lord's mercy, that these days, as we are passing through this.、Uh, Pandemic, that、uh, we would be sobered before the Lord to consider what is happening. Why? Why are all these chaos? Why are all these、uh, calamities? Why are all these uh, um, uh, uh, negative situation? Because there's a war going on, and we are living 
at the end part of the at the last part of this age. Last night we saw we saw that we need to know what time we are in. We are not in the early part of the gospel. We are living in the end part, the last part of this age. The the war has been intensified much much more. And we need to learn to see things beyond beyond what is physical, before, beyond what we, saw, what we can see in, with our naked eyes. I know many of us, we pray for the pandemic to stop or to, um, that the Lord will spare, to ch- ch- turn the situation. We pray according to the, our situation that we can seek and understand. But may the Lord help us to give us spiritual understanding to see beyond the scene, to, to, to realize this spiritual warfare that is going on and is raging. I was reminded last night as I was preparing this message of Brother Watchman Nee. Uh, in 1938, he was inviting, invited to attend this uh, Christian, uh, top Christian convention, the Keswick Keswick convention held in held in uh, uh, England and at that time there was still war going on between Japan and China and there was a Japanese believer also attending that co- convention and brother watchman Nee was invited was asked to offer uh, a opening prayer for that for that conference and that's how he prayed. I, I read again how he prayed. Let me read to you. He says, The Lord reigns. We affirm it boldly. Our Lord Jesus Christ is reigning, and he is Lord of all. Nothing can touch his authority. It is spiritual forces that are out to destroy his interests in China and Japan. Therefore, we do not pray for China. We do not pray for Japan. But we pray for the interests of thy son in China and Japan. We do not blame any men, for they only are tools of thine enemy. We stand for thy will. Shatter, O Lord, the kingdom of darkness, for the persecutions of thy church are wounding thee. Amen. You just read such a prayer. You realize here is a person who did, who saw through all the apparent situation. The war between China and Japan, that was just something on the surface. What is at stake is not this war. Men will pray, pray for China. Men will pray for Japan. Men will pray for God to stop this war. But here is a godly man who prayed not for China, not for Japan, not for the war to stop. He prayed that God's interests of your son, the interests of God's son in China and in Japan, for God to gain something. He said, we do not blame any men. They are only tools of your enemy. Dear saints, We need to pray. This uh, here's a. We need to first 
have insight into the scene behind the apparent, behind the physical, to realize the spiritual warfare. What is what is at stake? Is not this party, that party, uh, this government, that government, this situation, that situation. What is at stake is God's interest. God's interest over America. God's interest over the whole earth. If we have this kind of realization, our prayer will be different, and we will be in a state, and we learn to fight this warfare accurately, precisely. Let me read on. Number B says, In our fighting, we deal not with things that appear on the surface, but with the power of darkness behind these things. C, we need to engage the fighting prayers which can defeat the devil in the air and bring down God's authority. Such prayers are expressed in the heavenly realm and from the throne of God. Fighting prayers. Brothers and sisters, do we know how to engage in fighting prayers? As I said, these days, I'm sure a lot of prayers have been going up to heaven regarding the pandemic, regarding all the chaos. Well, but how about the fighting prayer? Do we know how to engage in this spiritual battle? Surely we are not fighting against flesh and blood, as Paul tells us. This battle is not about men. It's not about flesh and blood. This battle is, in, is a spiritual battle that <clears throat> we need to learn. We need to become skillful in uttering, fighting prayer. The prayer that Brother Nee offered in that convention, he had a deep realization within. What was the war? What the real war is not before, between China and Japan. The real war was between God and Satan. Satan wants to use the outward war to destroy God's interest. But God has his interest in those countries for the expression, for the proclamation of his name, of his gospel. So he prayed for the kingdom of darkness to be bound. He reminded the Lord of the persecution of your church. He says what? His utterance for the persecutions of thy church are wounding thee. He realized these are not just persecution of, of men on earth. This is actually wounding the Lord, wounding the head. What a realization that was. He was standing as a warrior, fighting for God's interest. Today, brothers and sisters, I hope since we are more locked down, in our home, we are a lot of time are saved from traveling, from going places. Of course, you still work, you still do your job, but we are um, uh, should have more time available. These should be times we learn to learn for us to learn how to pray, engage in fighting prayers, learn how to fight. Don't fight. Don't just fight the wrong thing. We need to have the right target. The target is not pandemic. It's not COVID. 
the target is not the parties, Republican, uh, 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 Democrat, Democrat. These are not the targets. The target is Satan, is this spiritual battle. D, the prayer of the age is the prayer of the church as the body of Christ, the prayer that exercises the authority of Christ as the ascended Lord and head of the body for the fulfilling of God's economy. There is a prayer, Brother Lee calls, calls it the prayer of the age. What is the prayer of the age? The prayer of the age is a prayer that will correspond to God's work in this age. What God wants to gain, what God wants to carry out in this age is not ordinary prayers. Christians offer all kinds of prayers. Prayers of thanks, prayers of uh, supplication, prayers of uh, we ask God for this. When we, when we are ill, we ask God for his uh, healing. We lost a job. We ask God to, uh, to, to grant, grant us uh, 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 new opportunities. Those are not prayers of the age. The prayer of the age touches God's work in this age, which is the prayer of the church as the body of Christ. It's the prayer that exercises the authority of Christ as the ascended Lord and head of the body for the fulfilling of God's economy. One says, after his resurrection and ascension, the individual Christ has become the corporate Christ. Thus, before God today, not only is the individual Christ praying, but the corporate Christ, the head with the body, is praying as well. Saints, we, are, we know that the ascended Christ is now in the heavens, at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, he is interceding for us. But how about us? We have to also, we also charge to pray, to intercede on the earth, right? In so many places in the New, in the New Testament, we are charged, we must pray. The apostles ask, pray for me, pray for, my, pray for the ministry. Christ, was pray, Christ is praying in the heavens, but his people must also pray on the earth. And actually, those two prayers, Christ's prayer and his people's prayer on the earth, are not two separate prayers. They are actually one prayer. Christ in the heavens, he is the head. And now we believers on the earth, we are his body. Now, after his resurrection, this individual Christ has become a corporate Christ. He picked, us all, he picked up all the believers to be part of him. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us he made us alive together with him. And he what? He, uh, he, he uh, uh, raised us up together with him, and he seated us together with him. Praise the Lord. He did not resurrect alone. He did not ascend alone. We ascend together with him because we are his body. Where he is, that's where we are. How can you separate the head in the heaven and his body is on the earth? No. The body is where the head is. If we see this organic relationship, we will realize today the church is where Christ is, which is in the heavenlies, in his ascended position. 
Today, the one who is interceding is not just Christ alone. It's a corporate Christ. It's a body Christ who is praying. Number two says, we need to see the meaning of the ascension of Christ. A says, the ascension of Christ indicates that the entire work of redemption has been completely accomplished. When Christ ascended, it is a decoration, it is a proclamation that all the work has been done. He is now seated in the heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. All the work has been done. Then B, the ascension of Christ indicates that the Lordship of Christ has been established. Acts 2.36 tells us that all the whole house of Israel know that this Jesus, whom you crucified, has been made Lord and Christ. The man, Jesus, is now made Lord and Christ. God is Lord. No problem, no argument. But how about a man? A man became Lord. This Jesus, a lowly man, a despised man, now in ascension, he is made Lord, made Christ. He is now the owner of all heaven and earth. This is what ascension means. All the work has been done. And Christ is enthroned, inaugurated into his lordship, his kingship. Jesus is Lord. Number three says, we need to see the church's position as the body of Christ. Because the church is the body of Christ, the position of the church is exactly the same as that of Christ. Since the body is one with the head, the position of the body is exactly the same as that of the head. This is crucial, brothers and sisters. If we want to learn to pray the prayer of authority, the prayer of the age, we have to take up, learn, we have to know what our position is. We are not praying as individual believers. I say, I, I kind of pointed out the other day. Well, that's uh, Sister Mary, I think, daughter of Billy Graham, uttered a tremendous prayer, very spiritual, very, very spiritual prayer. I'm sure our sister is one who, who loves the Lord, who knows the Lord very well. But I don't know whether she realized or she prayed as just a loving, seeking Christian, or she prayed as a member of the body of Christ. Today, when the church comes together to pray, it's not a small thing, brothers and sisters. The church's prayer meeting needs to be much, much more upgraded, recovered. It should not be the lowest attended meeting. The church's prayer meeting is a, is a war room. It's a war room. It's a room where the war is engaged. The church exercises the authority and takes on the position as the body of this Christ, as the corporate Christ praying, exercising the authority that Christ has given to us. I will never miss a prayer meeting. Even many times when I travel, I come back Tuesday afternoon, 
But the Tuesday night, sometimes I feel tired. But my wife reminded me, it's a prayer meeting tonight. I have to go to pray. Saints, we should not excuse ourselves. We should not belittle the prayer of the church. If you see how important it is, the prayer of the church should be the prayer of the body. Standing in the position as the body of Christ. Number four, let's read on. We need, we need to see the, the authority of the church as the body of Christ. The authority of the body is the authority of the head exercised by the body. Thus, the authority of the body is the authority of the head. In Matthew 28, we are told that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus says, All authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. Saints, the head has received all authority of heaven and earth. He has won the victory. He has been given this authority. And now we are his body. Saints, the church as the body of Christ is not in a figurative sense. Oh, we are just someone very close to him. No, we are literally the body of this Christ. In reality, there is... There is a a constant circulation going on between the head and the body, transmitting to us. We are truly his body. And his authority becomes our authority. Our authority. We don't have any authority in ourselves. The church has authority because the head has authority. B says, as the church, the body of Christ, we need to assume the authority of Christ. Saints, do you assume the authority of Christ? Or do we dare to assume the authority of Christ? Do not presume. We, but we, we are charged to assume. You know, in, uh, in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 19, says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. The Lord gave his disciples authority, and we need to assume that authority by faith. But of course, we should not presume. If we are not in a proper position, relationship with Christ, we just misuse this authority. Remember that we have a situation, case, a case in Acts 19, where there are these... uh, um, uh, people, there's the sons of Sceva, right? They saw that uh, Paul was able to cast out demons by the name of Jesus, and they thought, "Well, this is so good. Uh, I, I want to be. We want to be able to do that, and then we can get, get some benefit, profit. We will be admired at by the people." And so, when, when they come to a, a person with, uh, with possessed by demons, and they these sons of Sceva try to say, assume that a presume that they also have the same kind of authority, asking the demons to come out. Then the demons spoke up to say, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? The demons know who these sons of Sceva are. They are not in the proper position. They are trying to take advantage, misusing, abusing this kind of authority. So, the demons know Jesus. The, de- the demons know Paul, the Apostle Paul, his servant, 
But the demons know these guys. They are fooling around. So they jumped, they, the, all the demons jumped into, onto these sons of Sceva, possessing them. Oh, saints, these days, we need to learn to take on the position of the body and to assume properly the authority of the church, of Christ. The prayer of the, of the authority has two aspects, binding and losing. As the Lord charged us in Matthew 18, we should, whenever you come to, but where two, and two or three, to, you come together and <clears throat> you bind on earth, you shall bind on earth what has been bound in the heavens and you shall lose on earth what shall be loose, what has been loosed in the heavens. Who lose? Who binds? Not Christ, not God, but you, we, we bind, we loose. When we see the situation, we bind some frustration, some opposition. We tell the Lord, Lord, we bind this, we bind the enemy. We bind this opposition from the enemy. We didn't just ask God, please bind, it, bind him for us. No, the heaven already said, we bound already. The heavens bound already, but you, we are waiting for you to bind. Do we dare to take up this responsibility? To assume this responsibility? To exercise, to bind, to lose? The heavens has been waiting for so long already, waiting for the earth to respond. Let me move on. Number five, to fully enter into this kind of prayer, the prayer of the church as the body of Christ and be able to exercise the authority given by the head to the body, there are two things that we must realize. A, we must realize that we are members of the body, and we must live, act, and move in the body. Saints, we are not individual Christians, just loving the Lord, seeking the Lord. We are members of the body. We are members of one another, and we must live and act in the body. Don't live as an individual, individualistic Christian. You do things by yourself. You go to a meeting by yourself. You, you function by yourself. Even when we function, we realize I'm functioning as a member of the body. You have to function in a fitting way, not overly, not come short. When you come together with the saints, you are full of sensitivity. I'm a member here. When a team of basketball player, five of them go out to the field, each one does not just play his own ball. They are playing as a team. Whether I should or not, that doesn't matter. We are going to win as a team. Time, this may be time for you to pass. Maybe time for you to shoot. Maybe time for you to defend. But we all have a part. We are a member. We are not individualistic Christians standing alone by ourselves. Be in our daily life, we must always put off the old man and put on the new man by being renewed in the spirit of our mind. The new man is composed of the head with the body, Christ with the church. Paul charges in Ephesians 4, we need to put off the old man. What is the old man? Our old manner of life with all our natural thoughts. That's why in verse 23, Paul says we need to be renewed in the spirit of the mind, 
in order to put on the new man. What goes on in our mind? Our old, old ancient, old mind, fallen mind, especially, you know, toward one another. Sometimes when you come to the meeting, oh, you listen to when one uh, uh, a member speaks, and then he's oh, that person, uh, he uh, uh, can hardly talk. Look at he's stuttering. Uh, he he can we can hardly understand him. He should shut up. You have all these thoughts, and then you have you have been offended by a certain one, and you come to a prayer meeting when that person prayed, you will not say amen. Because you have some, you cannot forgive him for what he what he said to you the other day. All these thoughts are the thoughts of the old man that needs to be put off, and we learn to put on the new man. Let our mind be renewed. Our mind would be filled with forgiveness, filled with our love, our care for one another, instead of criticizing, condemning one another. Our mind needs to be renewed, that we can see one another as Christ sees, sees us. In this way, we are in the right position. We don't have any problem with any brother and sister in the church, in the body of Christ. Then, brothers and sisters, you are right with every member. Then you are in the position, in the proper position to exercise, to assume the authority of Christ as the authority of the body. Okay, we come to the last section now, Roman numeral three, the ultimate consummation of the new man. The corporate Christ is the new Jerusalem as the eternal kingdom of God to be the ultimate consummation of the tabernacle and temple, the eternal divine human incorporation, the eternal building of God and man. Praise the Lord for this ultimate consummation of this corporate man, corporate Christ, to be the new Jerusalem. As we read in Revelation 29, uh, 21, that uh, the new Jerusalem is God's tabernacle with man. And in verse 22, in the new Jerusalem, where you see no temple, because God and the Lamb are the temple. So this new Jerusalem is the tabernacle on the one hand for God to dwell in. It's also the temple for God's people to dwell in. It's a mutual dwelling place. Uh, It's a divine, eternal, divine, human incorporation. A, the New Jerusalem is a constitution of God and man, and man and God, who are constituted into one. It is divinity expressed in humanity and humanity glorified in divinity. I don't have any better utterance than is stated here. It's too, too wonderful. God and man, man and God constituted into one. God is no longer separate from man as in Genesis. God in heaven, man on earth. After 6,000 years of God's wonderful work of his salvation in his economy, in his move, now God and man are finally brought together so intimately, so uh, 
completely, so perfectly, God in man and man in God. B, divinity and humanity become a mutual dwelling place. The one who is God yet man dwells in the one who is man yet God. And the one who is man yet God dwells in the one who is God yet man. We are, God is now passing through the process. He is God, yet he is man. Now he has put on humanity. And we, as men, we men, we, after we are born of God, be redeemed by Christ and born of the Spirit, we are now God also in life and nature. He is God as yet man, we are man yet God. He dwells in us and we dwell in him. That's why in John 15, verse 4, it tells, the Lord tells us, abide in me and I in you. The Lord desires to gain this mutual dwelling place. This is the, corp- this is the significance, the deep meaning, significance of this corporate Christ, the body Christ, where Christ and man are perfectly, completely incorporated together to be one entity. C, we can live out and work out the New Jerusalem as the divine human incorporation by taking the Lord as our abode for us to be his abode. One, when we love the Lord Jesus, he manifests himself to us and the Father comes with him to make an abode with us for our enjoyment. This abode is a mutual abode in which the triune God abides in us and we abide in him. The practical experience of this ultimate incorporation of God and man as a mutual dwelling place is experienced by us when we love the Lord Jesus. Um, John fourteen twenty three really is a, a very precious verse to me. Um, I, I pray about this a lot, where it says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make an abode with him. When we love the Lord Jesus, the Father and the Son will come to make an abode with us. We'll become the triune God's abode, and also we will dwell in him. So let's love the Lord Jesus, right? Love him to, uh, uh, to, to love him with our whole being. Instead of loving the world, loving the things uh, the, the outward physical things. These days, brothers and sisters, may the Lord rekindle our first love to him. When we love him, we experience this mutual dwelling place. God dwells in us, and we dwell in God. Isn't this true? Whenever we love the Lord, when we are, when the worldly people try to entice us, try to, oh, how about have have uh, get uh, come and have some fun? Let's go to the uh, uh, do this and do that. And you say the Lord touch you. You should not do that. You should stay with me. Spend some time to pray. You love the Lord Jesus, and right away you sense the Lord is with you. He is making His home in you. He dwells in you. Then number two, we abide in Christ that He may abide in us by our dealing 
with the constant word in the scriptures that is outside of us and the present word as the spirit within us. When we abide in the Lord and let his words abide in us, we are one with him in actuality. John 15 verse 7 says that uh, uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you will, it will be it shall be done for you. When we abide in the Lord, his word, his words abide in us. So we need to spend time reading his word, coming to his constant word, and also to experience the present word, the instant word, the rhema word, right? We need to handle his word, deal with him in his word every day. When we, uh, by experiencing his word, we sense his indwelling us, and we sense our dwelling in him. We can confirm this with our experience, right? Through his word, we sense we can dwell in him, and he can dwell in us. Then number three, by our growth in the divine life in Christ as the living stone, we are being transformed into precious stones. Through the process of transformation, the triune God is being wrought into and structured together with us to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he graced us in the beloved for us to become the new Jerusalem as the ultimate testimony of Jesus and the good news to the entire universe. Brothers and sisters, the new Jerusalem is not the heaven in the good by and by that we expect to go to one, one of these days. The new Jerusalem is an eternal mutual dwelling place of God and man that you and I become, we become that new Jerusalem. We are being structured as the precious stones built into this building. Nothing can assure, can assure of our dwelling in God as the pieces of precious stones being built into the wall of that building. We, will, we shall go no more out. We are in there. We are part of it. You know, no wonder in, uh, in Revelation 3, uh, 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 verse 12, that uh, um, with the church, with the overcomers uh, in the church in, in Philadelphia, the promise was, he who overcomes, him I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall by no means go out anymore. I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which descends out of heaven from my God and my new name. Saints, we need to pursue the growth in life so that we can be transformed. We should not remain in our natural, natural, original natural state. We need to be transformed to become precious materials, precious stones that we can be built into the wall of the city. And as the overcomers in, 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 in uh, uh, Philadelphia, they become pillars. And upon these pillars, builder, you don't, you don't move pillars, uh, move away the pillars from the building uh, as you wish. They are there to stay. We are so integrated, so incorporated, so, so built in. We are part of that building. And upon us as pillars, will be written the name of God, the name of the city of God, New Jerusalem, and Christ's new name. 
when the name is written on you, you said if on my on me is written, say David Kong, then that means I'm David Kong, right? I mean, what would what is the good of a goodness of a name written on a person, certain person, but he is not that person? You have a name tag, spelling your name. That destiny, who you are. That pillar has the name of God, has the name of the New Jerusalem, has the name of Christ's new name, meaning that that pillar has become God, has become that new, new the city of God, has become Christ. <clears throat> Of course, not in his Godhead, but in his life, in his nature. Dear saints, praise the Lord. The kingdom of God is finally brought in, and God's eternal purpose is ultimately accomplished, fulfilled as the new Jerusalem. That is the ultimate consummation of the corporate Christ, the body Christ. Satan has been defeated, has been cast down by the man-child, by that, by the corporate man, and God's eternal purpose is finally fulfilled, and we enter into eternity, not just as many happy Christians. We enter into eternity as the corporate God. God yet man, and man yet God. Living together, mutually, indwelling within each other for eternity. Amen. Praise the Lord. I stop here. I turn the meeting over to Brother David.